so glad you've joined us on the ERLC podcast to explore how the Bible addresses important cultural issues pertaining to life, religious liberty, marriage and family, and human dignity, and how we can walk in wisdom for God's glory and for the flourishing of our neighbors. If you're enjoying this podcast and find it helpful, please leave a review wherever you listen. This will help more people find and benefit from what we're learning together. We are grateful for the time you take to join us for these conversations. Welcome to the Digital Public Square, a podcast from the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission about ethics, theology, and philosophy in today's society. I'm your host, Jason Thacker, and I serve as Chair of Research and Technology Ethics and also help lead the ERLC Research Institute. Each week, I'm joined by some of society's most influential thinkers, writers, and leaders to talk about the important ideas shaping our society today, as well as some of the top issues of life in the digital public square. Our goal with this podcast is to equip you to navigate these issues with biblical wisdom and insight. As always, alongside this podcast, we also have the Weekly Tech newsletter that you can sign up to receive each Monday morning. This resource is designed to prepare you to think deeply about the pressing ethical issues of technology, as well as life in the digital public square. You can subscribe now at jasonthacker.com slash weeklytech. In today's episode, I'm joined by Dr. Nigel Bigger to talk about his book, What's Wrong with Rights, from Oxford University Press. And we discuss the nature of human rights and the common good in society today. Until his recent retirement, Dr. Bigger served as the Regis Professor of Moral and Pastoral Theology at the University of Oxford, as well as the director of the McDonald Center for Theology, Ethics, and Public Life. He holds degrees from Oxford Regent College and the University of Chicago and studies a host of moral and ethical issues, including moral questions about killing, the health of liberal societies, questions of just war and the public responsibility of media, as well as the public vocation of universities. He's the author of numerous books and articles on Christian ethics and public theology. And now let's join our conversation. Well, Dr. Bigger, thank you so much for joining us today here on the Digital Public Square. I've really been looking forward to this conversation in particular because one of the things that I've been doing over the last few months is really studying the conception of human rights and how we as Christians navigate a lot of the challenges before us today. And I wanted to see if you could, as we get started, if you could tell us a little bit about your story and what led to you writing this specific book. Thanks, Jason, and thanks for the opportunity to talk about uh, such an important concept, um, not just in academic circles, but also more publicly. So I, I'm, I'm a Christian ethicist. I have been for 30 years or so. And back in uh, the early noughties, I was writing a book on um, the ethics of war. And as a Christian ethicist, I, I was uh, thinking out of the Christian just war tradition. And I noticed that, well, when I came to read one particular contemporary moral moral philosophical book on the ethics of war, David Rodin's uh, War and Self-Defense, I noticed how uh, Rodin as a moral philosopher, a non-Christian moral philosopher, based his uh, ethic of killing on a natural moral right, not to be killed except under certain circumstances. And uh, coming across that, I realized that the Christian tradition of just war thinking does not use the concept of a right at all. (laughs) And so the question in my mind was, "Mm, well, it could be, of course, that the Christian tradition has been missing a trick for 2,000 years and that 
uh, now that enlightenment has dawned, we ought to start talking in terms of rights. But I wanted to understand uh, as best I could why uh, the Christian tradition had not thought about the ethics of killing, ethics of war in terms of, of rights. So that, that was one major stimulus to get me to, to devote a whole book to rights. But there are others as well. Um, I mean, as an ethicist, I, I've always been very keen that um, my moral principles and my moral rules uh, be, uh, as it were, sensitive to circumstances, because circumstances do make a difference to how, to what sense you make of moral rules. And uh, there have been judgments by the European Supreme Court, particularly on, on military matters, uh, which affected the uh, operations of, of the British Army in Iraq and Afghanistan, that I thought were imprudently insensitive to um, the way in which circumstances certainly change what is morally required, but, but I think therefore also ought to change what, what rights require. And so there were the, the, those two stimuli really were the main ones that got me going. Yeah, this is a fascinating conversation because, as you well know, and many of our listeners know, it seems like we talk about everything in light of rights today. We have a right to privacy. We have a right to life. We have a right to, who knows, uh, just a host of different kind of moral and ethical issues and questions before us. And that's something that I've really benefited from your work, not only in this book, but also your other works, uh, specifically in the Just War tradition. But thinking about rights, I'm reminded of a story from Jacques Maritain. He wrote in Man and State. Um, he wrote about how amidst a lot of the conversations surrounding the Universal Human Rights Declaration, he was actually questioned at one time to say, there's such a breadth and a diversity to those who have signed on to these type of statements. And he said, yes, that's true. Just don't ask us why. We all agree that these rights exist. But if you ask us why, that's really where the dispute and the debate really begins. So I wanted to see if you could help kind of set up and help us to begin to think through some of the contemporary confusion and also some of the contemporary tensions between these conceptions of rights and ethics today. One distinction I, one basic distinction I make is between a legal right and a natural moral right. And my reading of particularly uh, Christian ethicists talking about rights is that they're not always very careful to distinguish those two. So there is a bit of a tradition uh, of skepticism with regard to rights. Jonah Donovan would be a, a major example of skepticism, but uh, she, she's an Anglican. Uh, you've got Alistair McIntyre, Roman Catholic, Ernest Fortin, and others who are skeptical about rights. And that, that was another stimulus, actually, for my writing this book. I wanted to figure out what I thought about the controversy over rights that had been raised by these moral theologians. And I came to the conclusion that there is no problem whatsoever <laughs> with a legal right. So as I understand it, as a Christian, that there is created natural morality. There are certain general moral principles built into the nature of things, in particular human rationality, and these are universal. And so there are universal moral claims. So uh, everyone has a moral claim not to be um, indiscriminately or disproportionately harmed. And so there are things that, like, that we can call natural moral claims. But a moral claim is different from a right. We have two different words. And I think what's distinctive about a right is that uh, it's, it's a particularly strong moral claim, uh, strong in the sense that it has the support of social institutions, of law and the authority of law, of uh, police, of courts, and of, of a prison system. 
So certain societies decide that um, there are certain freedoms or certain benefits that all citizens will have access to, or certain citizens will have access to, and uh, these are uh, these claims are are firmed up uh, by uh, these social institutions of of police and courts, etc. But not all moral claims have that kind of strengthening. But I, I think there's a basic distinction there, and so I have no trouble at all with a society deciding that you know, we're going to grant a certain right, and this means that uh, if someone finds their their moral claim infringed, then they can go to court to defend it. So that, that's one major distinction. On the issue you raised about, uh, yes, Maritain saying, well, we know uh, Chinese folk and Protestant folk and Catholic folk and atheist folk, we all agree about human rights, but we can't agree on, as it were, what their bases are. Well, I, I, my, my view is, as Christian, again, is that there are certain uh, universal features of the world, which different cultures will grasp in, in somewhat different ways. But no, we're not. different cultures are not entirely unintelligible to each other. So when I go to, to Hong Kong in 2013 for a conference on war and peace East and West, and I discover for the first time that ancient and medieval Confucian thought about ethics of war echoes the Christian just war tradition, a number of significant points, even though Latin Western civilization and Chinese civilization barely had anything to do with one another until the modern period. So I do think that there are, there are certain commonalities, although they do get refracted in, in weird and wonderful ways through different cultures. Yeah, I know a lot of, uh, for listeners who are kind of new to some of these conversations, especially around human rights, as we've already said, the language of rights is pretty ubiquitous in our society today. We talk about a right to basically everything. Often it's based in the sense of moral autonomy and the sense of being able to choose what I am and being able to express those things and not only express those things, but often have those things affirmed in our society as well. But you rightfully point out the nuance of language. You said sometimes when Christians write about human rights, they're not very keen to distinguish the difference between a subjective right or something like a natural right. I wanted to see if you could help orient us a little bit to some of the main terms. So you, in the book, you talk about a nature of a moral right versus just simply a right and subjective versus objective, and then this broader concept that's very popular and common in public discourse today in terms of human rights. So could you help us to understand the distinctions and some of the differences between this language and why that matters for this conversation? So the talk about subjective rights you'll find in, in Jonah Donovan and others. And what this means is it's a right that, that is the possession of, of, a, of an individual subject. So I have a right. And the, the contrast, that's contrasted with objective right, that's to say a moral order that we all inhabit. Um, so on the one hand, you have, as it were, the right or what's right, and then you have a right. And uh, Joan and, and others object to the notion of a right, of plural rights that individuals possess, because they think that it is uh, radically Hobbesian, in this, meaning that it expresses a, a fundamental egoism where, where, as you were saying, individuals claim whatever they want as a right. Uh, I, I, my, my view is that, yes, a lot of modern rights talk is that. So, so lots of folk, because they, they feel a, a deep need or want, uh, immediately assume they have a right to it. Uh, and that's, that's, that's um, nonsense. So insofar as uh, uh, subjective rights mean something that's radically egoistic as a Christian, of course, I, I can't agree to that because I think that 
human beings are born into the world with with both moral claims and moral duties. Uh, we were not born free of moral duties. We 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 have them as soon as we become uh, adult and conscious. So that's one contrast between subjective rights, plural, and objective moral right or order. You had also written about a moral right and then what's considered a right in terms of what's morally right and things. Just kind of understand, because a lot of the language, I think, is kind of overlaps. We use this term right, but it also means different things in different contexts. And so I, I want to kind of make sure that listeners um, and all of us kind of understand the nuances of the language here. Yeah, it is. Some of the nuances are quite subtle and they do overlap a lot. So um, some people talk about about natural moral rights. So they think that, that, uh, that there are rights that are, that are natural, not simply granted by a particular society, and particularly in the Roman Catholic tradition, that is. So, and, and Maritain would have been one example of that. I myself came to the conclusion that it's best not to talk about natural moral rights because that gives the impression that uh, in a situation where there is no effective uh, law and order, where there are no police, there are no courts, to talk about you having natural rights implies that your moral claim has more support than it has. In such a situation, your moral claim only has such authority as the conscience of whom you're addressing. It depends on the sensitiveness of the consciousness of the person uh, you're addressing, and, and you have no other support to back your, your moral claim. So I, I just think to talk about natural moral rights is misleading in, in that respect. So I, I don't talk about them, but, but some do. I, I do talk about moral claims, as I've done repeatedly, uh, but not moral, natural rights. And then, um, as I've said before, the, the, the contrast is with, uh, as, as Joan and Oliver Donham talk about right, singular, meaning what I would call natural morality and natural moral order, which whose authority obtains even if we have no legal rights at all. Um, so so that, um, if you imagine a, a part of the world where there is, there's, there's warfare and there are no common laws, there may still be uh, moral claims that, that both sides will, will acknowledge, but there, there is no laws, there's no common social institutions you, you can appeal to if you think that uh, you're being mistreated. One of the things I love about the way you've written this book is that you ask these questions. So you're not only asking in terms of the question of the title of what's wrong with rights, but you ask kind of these big questions in terms of you open up talking about are there natural rights and you explore some of this kind of widespread skepticism throughout the moral tradition, not Christian and non-Christian both, about how there is, as you've been already alluding to, that the concept of rights without a kind of an order or a society to enact and um, to justify those type of legal rights and legal expressions. Can you briefly introduce us to some of these main figures? I know you open up talking about Edmund Burke. Um, what are some of these main figures in this skeptical tradition of rights, and why do they find the concept of natural rights problematic? Yes, so in my first chapter, I, I lay out what I call the the, the British sceptical tradition. Uh, so Edmund Burke, Jeremy Bentham, David Ritchie, and Honora O'Neill, all of whom have similar reservations about natural rights. Uh, but Edmund Burke probably is the, is the classic figure here. And uh, he was uh, reacting against the French Revolution and against the notion of these... Uh, what he calls abstract rights to, to liberty, 
So these these are undefined, but uh, and his complaint his complaint is that because of their abstraction, so we're not, not talking about legal rights. Legal rights are quite specified. It's it's clear who has them. It's clear under what conditions. But abstract rights uh, worried Burke because it seemed to him to to give license for the destruction of uh, social institutions, and so he regarded them as as politically dangerous, and uh, was 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 therefore highly skeptical about bills of rights or declarations of rights. And uh, you'll find a similar skepticism running through Jeremy Bentham and then David Ritchie, who's a um, a moral philosopher I discovered by browsing through a bookshop and. In North England, he wrote this wonderful book called Natural Rights in 1895, which is, is well worth worth reading. But many of the same uh, concerns are raised by by Ritchie. And then Honora O'Neill, who's, who's still living, a uh, contemporary um, Kantian philosopher, uh, she too has, uh, she's worried about the exaggerated claims of human rights um, and how it, it, it devalues the currency to raise expectations that can't possibly be met. Later on in the book, you specifically kind of shift the discussion a little bit from talking about are there natural rights to talking about some of the prominent thinkers. And you've already referenced um, the O'Donovans um, and some others. I wanted to see if you could help us to understand some of the concern that they have. You've already alluded to that. I wanted to see if you could unpack a little bit about the concern that they have with the concept of rights versus goods and also this concept of the common good. I think that language often in Christian circles gets thrown out about pursuing the common good. But again, that seems to be kind of an amorphous term at times where it means different things in different contexts. So I wanted to see if you could help us to understand that concept of the common good and why some see rights as contrary to the common good because they're more individualistic in nature. Yes, that's a very important question. And you're quite right. Uh, Christian talk about common good is often frustratingly vague. Certainly, I mean, I've read, read a lot of, of Roman Catholic documents about that, and it is frustratingly elusive what's, quite, what's meant by it. The reason that some Christian theologians are skeptical about rights is they, they do think that it, it kind of um, legitimizes morally a kind of a radical, selfish egoism um, and becomes a vehicle for the ego, um, where all that matters is the satisfaction of, of the individual ego and any sense of responsibility for the wider common good uh, is is neglected. Now, my view is that, yes, that there may well be people, people who talk that way about, or, or use rights talk in that way, and there are plenty of people who, if they have a, a deeply felt need, assume that they have a right to have it met, which is nonsense. That's true. On the other hand, insofar as um, my right against arbitrary detention, let's say, or my right not to be robbed, implies that you have a duty to treat me well. It's also true to say that, that legal rights, uh, insofar as they, they make citizens treat each other as they ought to be treated, actually contributes to the common good. <laughs> so I don't think it's as simple as to say that, that, that rights are simply selfish and they corrode uh, any sense of, of common good. But uh, I, I do think uh, there is a danger that rights become the only kind of moral talk we have, and we, we don't talk about uh, duties, we don't talk about virtues, we talk only about rights. Yeah, I know that's some of the contemporary discussion that we're having here in the United States as well as having, when we talk about the nature of rights, also those corresponding virtues as well as those duties. And one of the things that you do throughout the book, um, and someone that I've been very intrigued by and also very influenced by is the gentleman uh, Nicholas Wolverstorff from Yale. 
Uh, you talk about his book, Justice, Rights, and Wrongs, a little bit and kind of interact with it. One of the questions I wanted to ask you, because I think Wolderstorff is picking up on some of those similar things when he's describing the nature of the Christian ethic. He talks about how it's not a deontological system, it's not a consequentialist system, but he also rejects some of this kind of eudaimonian, this early Greek influence on the virtue tradition and reframes that. And I always, uh, I guess, being a, a researcher and academic, I always love a good footnote. And one of the things he puts in a footnote there is he talks about how we can, we should reframe the Christian ethic instead of being a eudaimonian virtue ethic. He talks about it in terms of an Irenaic virtue ethic and the sense of shifting from an individualistic kind of egoistic focus that we've already been critiquing and talking about and shifting that to more of an Irenaic kind of communal type of ethic where we're pursuing the common good. So I wanted to see, can you unpack a little bit about his theory of subjective rights and how that kind of influences or shapes how we talk about this kind of communal nature of these moral goods that we all share in? I mean, he... He argues against the O'Donovans, for example, that the notion of subjective rights you can find way back in in the biblical tradition, patristic tradition, whereas others argue that it because it enters the bloodstream of Christian thinking in the medieval period. I'm not sure that I, I don't think I agree with with Nick about that. Um, and again, he's not very clear about distinction between legal rights and and moral rights. On the eudaimonia and uh, Irene options. Um, Again, I don't think I agree with him. I can't, I can't remember the de- detail at this point, but I, I do think that the, the basic element of a Christian ethic is, is not law or right, it is good. So I, I, I'm, I'm a follower of John Finnis and Jermaine Grise here because um, laws need to justify themselves in terms of how they serve the, the human good. If you want uh, the biblical authorization, then... Humanity was made for the Sabbath, not the Sabbath for humanity, uh, would be the one I'd appeal to. Uh, so I, I do think that eudaimonia, in that sense of, of human well-being, is, is, is a fundamental concept, more fundamental than law in, in a Christian ethic. And, and I didn't, I mean, I, 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 I don't think I, I, I agreed with Nick's interpretation of the meaning of eudaimonia in in ancient philosophy, but even, you know, even if that's what, what it meant to the ancients, it's not what it necessarily means. Uh, but I, I can't do better than that at this point, because it's a while since I wrote that and, and uh, thought about what Nick is saying. No, that's helpful. And one of the things that I, I appreciate about this book overall is that, and I've had my supervisors and other faculty members um, at my school encourage me and encourage others to say, this is one of those kind of groundbreaking books. It's one of those books that regardless of if you agree with your premise and your argument or not, it's something you have to interact with um, because it is so monumental in many ways. And that's something that um, one of the reasons that I wanted to have you here on the podcast is just a dialogue about these things, given part of it is also my own research and work. So one of the things that I focus on um, in my doctoral dissertation that I'm going to be focusing on over the next year or two is talking about our right to privacy. That's something that is pretty common, especially in the United States, but increasingly around the world, especially even in the in the European Union with the GDPR. We talk about a, a right to privacy in the sense of a right to kind of individual autonomy in many ways. And so I wanted to see, as you've kind of been thinking about rights in general and how do we think about that as Christians, kind of the intersection of the Christian moral tradition in terms of some of these kind of 
rights that we see today, do you see those more as moral goods, like there's a moral good to a sense of privacy? Or is that more considered a, a subjective right that's more of that kind of legal right that you've been speaking of? That's a good thing to think about because it raises some, some important points. Um, well, first of all, everything depends on what's meant by privacy. If it means, and th- this is where uh, legal formulation matters, if the law was formulated so it's basically to protect the individual against, let's say, state interference or some kind of interference by some other body, well, there may well be a good reason to limit the extent to which other bodies can interfere with the, with the individual citizen. However, if I remember rightly, in um, Carter versus Canada, this was a judgment of the Supreme Court of Canada in 2015, whereby the Supreme Court overruled the Canadian Parliament uh, to insist that um, a provision be made for people to opt for uh, voluntary euthanasia or physician-assisted suicide, e- even though the, the Canadian Parliament had repeatedly refused to do that. One of the elements in the argument of the court was an appeal to a right for privacy, <laughs> or a, 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 a certainly a right to liberty. And one of my comments on that was, first of all, this is a right, a right to liberty that appears in the Canadian Charter of uh, Rights and Freedoms. So here we have a, a, the kind of thing that Burke was against, a, a list of abstract, ill-defined rights. And there was one, the, the, one of the, the rights was a right to, to liberty and a number of other things. And my response to that was, as a Christian, there's no such thing as a right to abstract, absolute liberty. Uh, as a Christian, uh, we are born into the world and we are born into, immediately born into moral claims and moral duties. Um, so we, are, we have no absolute liberty because our liberty is, is constrained by, by moral duties. So I don't recognize this absolute right. So it, dep- it depends partly on, on, on how the law is framed. My complaint against against uh, the uh, the judgment Carter versus Canada was that uh, this abstract right right to liberty, and I think I think also there was an an element of the right to privacy, was exploited by judges to um, create a new right to assisted suicide and physician uh, and involuntary euthanasia. So it, it, everything depends on 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 how the law is formulated, what's meant by privacy. Yeah, we have a similar debate here in the United States, especially uh, given the 1965 Supreme Court decision on Griswold versus Connecticut over the use of contraceptives. Justice William Douglas at the time famously found an implied right to privacy in our Constitution, and he said it was in a penundra of the Bill of Rights. Um, And it was very interesting because that actually became the basis, and this is something you rightfully point out, that a lot of the discussions we have today about digital privacy are actually built upon a framework. It's very tied into a lot of bioethics questions and sexuality questions, and that's very similar here in the United States. So just this past summer, uh, when the famous uh, Dobbs versus Jackson's Whole Woman Health case came down and overturned the precedent in Roe v. Wade and Casey versus Planned Parenthood, that actually upended the supposed constitutional right to privacy. Uh, that many of these decisions had been built on, from Griswold versus Connecticut, Roe v. Wade, Lawrence v. Texas. Lawrence v. Texas was about homosexuality. You had a lot of these cases, even Obergefell v. Hodges, that legalized same-sex marriage here in the United States nationwide, uh, was built on this kind of foundation of this implied right to privacy that's found in our Constitution. And when the Dobbs decision came down, it upended so much of that precedent that now we're having 
incredible conversations and very uh, tension-filled conversations in the United States about a right to privacy in terms of not only a right to privacy from sexuality issues and bioethics questions tying into assisted suicide and euthanasia, even like you mentioned, but even getting into digital privacy about the rights you know, that we as individuals have against interference from not only the government, but especially increasingly important in the digital public square are questions of these big companies, big tech companies, and the data that is being collected on us often, while we make, quote, consent to it, and I put that in quotes, uh, because we just kind of click through those things as fast as possible, and we're not actually consenting because we often have no idea what we're doing, but how that data and these troves of data have been collected on us. And so that's actually kind of a, a focus of my project over the next year or so is from a Christian moral and ethical position tradition, how do we understand the controversy surrounding a right to privacy? And what do we as Christians think about that? How do we talk about whether we want to say it's a right to privacy or some kind of common moral good protection from interference, just kind of playing out some of those things. So I'm grateful for your kind of influence there. Yeah, just uh, on that, um, certainly there's no such thing as a, as a natural moral right to, to privacy. It's, it's not it's not basic. So, so a society may decide to grant a right to privacy, but the process of defining the terms of, of the right ought to take into account the social good and, and, and social duties. And, and for, there may be certain respects in which social uh, claims, the claims of the common good, re- require that the right to privacy be limited. But that, that, that would go into the deliberation that produces the, the legal right. But, but there's no such thing, as a, in my mind, as a, as a natural moral right to privacy. I know some have described it, and this is one of the areas that was interesting to me, is that really throughout the Christian moral tradition, as I've found in my research far, there are very few that are directly addressing privacy issues. Uh, one, because it's not been as prevalent or as needed in years past, uh, but especially with the kind of the advent of digital technologies and tracking and data collection and a lot of the concepts of what many today will call surveillance capitalism. There's questions surrounding what type of data should be collected, what type of consent should be given, and what type of moral goods, kind of common good, I guess you could say, at should we as a society think about in terms of this kind of increasing questions around the digital public square? I wanted to shift the conversation just slightly. One of the things, obviously, as a Christian ethicist and moral philosopher, we talk a lot about, and I think sometimes when we think about human rights and the way some will kind of categorize human rights is we talk about the metaphysical aspects of what it means to be human. We'll say we have kind of a natural right to X, Y, and Z. Given the way that the Christian tradition has at times, not always, and you rightfully point out this is kind of a a scattered approach or there's kind of a a skeptical tradition here kind of leading back all the way to the beginning, Um, but uh, the connections between natural rights and the Imago Dei. I think often, especially in the Christian moral tradition, I've, Carl Henry, even um, Herman Bavink, will talk about the centrality of the image of God to the Christian moral tradition, and many will tie the image of God to a concept of human rights. I wanted to see if you could dialogue a little bit about some of those metaphysical aspects of the Christian ethic and how that ties in or kind of connects to conceptions of the Imago Dei or the image of God. Yeah, so I, I do think that... Um Human beings have what we can call a certain dignity, a certain worth, uh, that means that they should be treated in certain ways and should not be treated in other ways. In other words, they, their worth generates uh, moral claims and duties in other people. 
Uh, so in that sense, the Imago Dei generates moral claims. As a human being, Jason, you uh, shouldn't insult me gratuitously. Um, you shouldn't uh, um, harm me wantonly. All sorts of things you shouldn't do to me just because I'm a human being and I deserve, as a human being, a certain kind of respect and treatment. But again, notice I'm talking about moral claims. <laughs> I don't talk about rights for the reason I explained earlier, that, that a right, I think, is a strong kind of moral claim, and it's strong because it has the backing of social institutions such that if you fail to treat me as I should, I can then appeal to the courts. And that's not always the case. I don't know whether there are laws granting rights. Do I have um, that extra backing for my social claim? So I, I do think the Imago Dei, if you like, though that's a, it's a very vague, ill-defined term, as is dignity, but I, I do think Christians are bound to suppose that Human beings have a certain status, certain worth, certain value uh, that means that um, all sorts of kinds of treatment are not appropriate and certain kinds of treatment are appropriate. But I talk in terms of claims, not rights. So obviously throughout the book, you talk a lot about what's wrong with rights. I mean, obviously that's the title. Many of your sections are kind of debunking and walking through and uh, nuancing some of these discussions, talking about moral goods versus rights. One of the things you do at the end, I, I liked in your conclusion, you talk about what's right with rights. And so you're talking about some of the good aspects of rights, because obviously you've kind of been peeling back and kind of reframing and formulating, but obviously you still believe that rights are good in some sense and can be good for society, but they're obviously legally bound and tied to specific societies and communities based on those who can enforce those rights. So I wanted to see if you could spend a, a few minutes just talking a little bit about what's right with rights and how that ties into the Christian moral tradition as well. Absolutely. I mean, um, I mean many reviewers who are lawyers complained about my book being so negative. <laughs> to which my response was, you know, I may be wrong, but it seems to me that the, for every one book that is skeptical about rights, there must be a hundred that are all in favor of rights. So I wasn't quite sure why they were being quite so defensive. I thought there has to be some scope for skeptical scrutiny of some of the questions that rights talk raises. One of my reviewers uh, actually uh, didn't notice that the title of the book has a question mark at the end of it. <laughs> he thought it was a statement, what's wrong with rights? No, it wasn't, it was a question. So I went into the book with uh, some skepticism, but also, also some skepticism uh, with regard to the Christian critics. I wasn't entirely persuaded by, for example, the arguments of Joan and Joan, mainly Joan O'Donovan, and to some extent Oliver or Alistair McIntyre. Uh, so I did go in with, with some something of an open mind. Uh, and so the first thing I decided was nothing at all wrong with with legal rights, and, and legal rights are important because they they give extra protection to freedoms and benefits that are good for human beings to have. So that's that's certainly very positive. Another thing is, um, I learned this through reading Mary Wollstonecraft's uh, classic book on, on the rights of women in the late uh, 18th century. Because she was arguing, very interestingly, she was arguing that what needs to be changed is, 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 is the culture, it's the way in which men regard women. But she argued that giving women legal rights would help to affect that change. So rights weren't the, as the be and end all, but there are means of changing the social ethos so that certain things become normal and natural. And I think that, that I never thought of that before, but, but that, that meant that rights actually can have a positive, constructive role in beginning to shift 
cultural norms. And uh, I'm sure that that's the case with regard to race relations too. So, so again, here here's a case where, with all due respect to certain Christian critics, the idea of rights possessed by by citizens can actually make the body corporate, the social body, healthier, <laughs> because because they, they 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 encourage us to treat each other in certain ways. So, so I, it, it's not it's it's to, to to oppose individual rights to common good is far too simple. There can be actually a constructive, creative healthy interaction between the two. I think there's some similar overlap, and obviously we don't have time to dig into it. Um, but even with the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, while there's not a binding effect of this declaration, there can be a, at least a raising of awareness of some of the atrocities that happen around the world. There can be some sense of accountability, even though that's strained, I think, at times. Um, but it does kind of raise an awareness and say that, you know, all people do matter. There is an inherent value um, as we've already spoken of, a dignity or a worth to all human beings simply by the status of uh, being a human being. And I think that, as you said, this concept of these subjective rights can maybe push along the conversation. So it's not just kind of an either or, maybe there is some type of overlap here that can be helpful when we're thinking through conceptions of the common good. Yes, yes. And, and uh, several times you've you talked about human rights, and I haven't said what I think about human rights, and, and just in terms of clarifying the meaning of human rights, as I understand them, uh, you, you've got what some people call natural moral rights, which are, are not enshrined in, in any law, but they, they as, a, as it were, built into the nature of things. I think it's best not to talk about moral rights, natural rights. I think it's best to talk about moral claims. But human rights, um, and to some extent, when the Universal Declaration was published in 1948, a lot of the rights there, certainly in terms of, of international institutions, they were really natural moral rights, because, because there were no international institutions, as it were, to give them that extra support that makes them a right rather than a claim. However, since then, international institutions have developed so that um, certainly in certain parts of the world, if you infringe a human right, uh, you, you may well end up in, in court. You'll be held accountable, and um, the person whose rights have been, been violated uh, will have extra support. But it depends on, on which part of the world we're talking about, because there are some places where the writ of human rights is purely nominal, because there are no effective international institutions. So uh, human rights are, are, as it were, halfway legal. They don't have the strength of legal rights in a, in a, a nation-state's um, system, uh, because international institutions are weaker. But they, they, are, they have more bite than a, than a natural moral claim. So they're kind of they hover in between. No, I think that's a really helpful clarification. I appreciate you bringing it out. Obviously, um, even given what we've talked about over the last few minutes, there's just so much that can and should be discussed in terms of the Christian moral tradition and these uh, notions of rights and how we think and process through some of this. Um, and so I highly recommend listeners to pick up your book, What's Wrong with Rights from Oxford University Press. Uh, one of the blessings, I think, to all of us um, especially those of us who may be on a budget, is that your book is recently, or is coming soon, going to be published as a paperback. Uh, so it's a little bit more accessible for most of us because a lot of times these hardback editions uh, from university presses are uh, expensive to say the least. Uh, but this is a book that is well worth the investment and I encourage listeners to grab a copy of it. One of the things that we always do is we end our time here on the Digital Public Square is I'm talking about further resources. So obviously your book, uh, we want folks to go out and pick up a copy of this. I think it's um, some 
some helpful things to chew on. I've worked through the book one time, and even after our conversation, I want to go and rework back through the book uh, because I think there must there was a lot, obviously, that I missed along the way, um, and a lot of nuance that I think is very helpful for this conversation. Um, but I wanted to ask you, what are some further resources if folks want to dig a little bit deeper on some of these ideas? Um, especially in relation to the Christian moral tradition. Are there certain books, Christian and non-Christian alike, uh, that you would recommend or resources you would recommend to talk about these things? Yes, uh, Jason. So uh, on the Christian side, Brian Tierney's um, book, The Idea of Natural Rights, published in 1987, Brian Tierney, his, I think, is is the, the authoritative account of the emergence of natural rights talk in Christendom in the medieval period. Uh, so anyone who wants to, to, to uh, look at a, an authoritative account of how natural rights talk emerged in the Christian West, then that's the book to go to. And it's, it's well known and well known to be authoritative. Nicholas Waterstorff's book, I'm just trying to remember, yes, Justice, Rights and Wrongs, published 2008 by Princeton uh, that's also it, 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 it's a it's a very good and stimulating book. I don't agree with with it at all, but Nick is a is a Christian moral a Christian philosopher, and so um, he will give you his reading of the rootage of uh, natural rights way back in the biblical and patristic tradition, which not everyone agrees with. With but uh, he's certainly well worth reading. Uh, if you if you want a counterpoint, then reading one of the articles by Jonah Donovan will give you um, a much more sceptical view of rights than, than Nick um, Walterstorff espouses. Uh, on the philosophical rather than theological side, uh, I really would recommend reading David Ritchie's Natural Rights. I mean, Ritchie was a, a late Victorian Scottish-born moral philosopher. His book was published in 1895. Uh, it, it's, been, it's been reprinted in the early noughties. Uh, I'm not sure who the publisher was. Uh, but I discovered it by by chance, just browsing through the shelves of a of a book uh, of a bookstore, and it is wonderfully written. He's got a very wry sense of humour, and there's a, a wealth of stimulating uh, information. I mean, for example, at one point he's talking about um, early bills of rights in in uh, U- U.S. state constitutions. I forget which state it was, but there was one state constitution that apparently granted a right to happiness. <laughs> not a right to pursue happiness, but a right to happiness. And he, he made the, the wry comment that this was, quote, a rather large draft on the Bank of Providence. <laughs> uh, but no, he, I really would recommend reading him, um, even though what he wrote is a century and a quarter old. It's, it's well worth it. And then of all the um, – there's been a lot of, of writing by contemporary more philosophers on rights. The best one, I think, is James Griffin, Griffin's On Human Rights. Uh, again, I don't agree with all of what he says, and, and in my book I explain why I don't, but James Griffin's On Human Rights, I think, is by far the, the, the best written and uh, uh, probably the most authoritative. Well, those are really helpful, and for listeners' sake, if you weren't able to write those down, we'll have those in the show notes, along with links that you can purchase some of those books, along with Dr. Bigger's book, What's Wrong with Rights, from Oxford University Press. Um, But Dr. Bigger, I want to say thank you, one, for your work, um, and for just uh, this type of conversation. It was really stimulating for me personally, and I think it will be for listeners as well. And I really appreciate you taking the time to join me today here on the Digital Public Square. It's been my pleasure, Jason. Really glad to talk about these things. They're really important.
Well, from all of us here at the Digital Public Square, I want to say thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this conversation, would you consider leaving us a review online on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, your favorite podcasting app? These reviews really help us to know how we're doing and also to share the word about the podcast with others. As a reminder, you connect with Dr. Bigger and learn more about his book, What's Wrong With Rights, as well as the numerous recommended resources we talked about in the show notes. Also, make sure to sign up to receive the Weekly Tech email briefing that comes out each Monday morning. This resource is designed to prepare you to think deeply about the pressing ethical issues in the public square today, as well as to stay up to date on the latest technology news. You can sign up at jasonthacker.com slash weekly tech. The Digital Public Square is a production of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission. It's produced and hosted by Jason Thacker. Production assistance is provided by Caden Christian and technical production provided by Owens Productions. It's edited and mixed by Mark Owens. Thank you and I hope you have a great week.